Hello, I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Vishida. And this is Climate Optimus. This week's episode, we're going to be digging into rivers and climate impacts. Before we get into this, did you like climb Mount Everest or something this weekend? Or did you just take it easy? And- I took it easy. Nice. Yeah. Did you have any big uh, walking expeditions? No, I helped build a fence this weekend and felt like I was about 86 years old. I just don't do any physical labor anymore, and it showed. I was in pain. So you need to work on your fence game. I need to work on a lot of games. <laughs> um, a fitness, overall fitness game, probably. Got winter coming around, maybe you can chop some wood and stack it. And Do I look like Pa Ingles? I'm not chopping any wood. <laughs> <laughs> so... This week's reason for hope, research into sea otters showing that they're a key piece restarting uh, a natural carbon sink in our oceans. So otters, as it turns out, have pretty voracious appetites and their favorite food or one of the favorite foods are sea urchins. And those sea urchins are the creatures that are eating the kelp. And in the absence of having sea otters there, They really destroy those kelp forests. They modeled an area near Vancouver Island, an area actually about the size of Costa Rica. And what they looked at was, you know, basically what would it be, what would that kelp forest be like with otters present versus not? And they found that the ecosystem with otters present would capture about 4.4 to 8.7 million more tons of of carbon, roughly equivalent to about 100,000 automobiles running on the road for a year. That's crazy. It is crazy to think that a single animal in an ecosystem could have that big of an impact. It really is. So I guess these otters are no small thing. No, they're a big deal. Well, that's amazing. And it kind of, if you think about it, it kind of segues into... Our episode today with with rivers and kind of the internet interconnectivity, if I could speak, that would help. The interconnectivity of all these systems and and how that impacts wildlife. Yeah, I mean, sea otters aren't going to solve climate change for us, but I think it underscores sure. the importance of natural systems in helping sequester carbon. So just back in mid-August, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation declared a water shortage on the Colorado River the first in their 99 years of record keeping. Huh. Yeah, and the Colorado River supports roughly, you know, 40 million people. Wow. Demand has long outstripped supply, so that's not new, but mm-hmm. the area has been suffering from, you know, decades-long drought. And it turns out that, you know, hotter temperatures from climate change are really magnified the severity of that drought. Yeah, sure. You get more surface evaporation, plants draw in more water. And so, you know, what would already have been probably a bad drought has become much worse because of, because of climate change. Right. And, you know, the Colorado River is not alone. You know, the Indus River Basin in Asia, which about 200 million people rely upon, is also a similarly, like, over-constrained water system. And... You know, climate change there is, you know, melting the glaciers that the Indus River relies on. So Mm. as climate change increases, it's really going to force some difficult decisions, I think, on water use. Decisions that were probably going to come at some point, but now we're going to be forced to make. 
Well, that makes me feel guilty, but I take like the world's longest showers. I mean, what's a long shower? Are we talking like 10 minutes? Are we talking like 30 minute showers? It might be 10. I mean, maybe I haven't like timed it out, but it's definitely 10. I mean, I'll, I'll pretty much go till the hot water starts to run out. It's not really for hygienic reasons. It's really kind of therapeutic and nobody bothers me when I'm in there. So it's your safe space. Yeah, everything just, the the world can have all kinds of things going on <laughs> and I cannot be bothered with it when I'm in that shower. No, I, I get it. So we just need to find a more eco-friendly safe space for you. I, I guess. Saying. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to bring on somebody to, to talk about climate impacts in rivers that is more qualified than us. Um, it's a pretty low bar. Um, Today's guest, Timmy Mandish, is a fish biologist who's been working around river restoration for over 20 years, and she agreed to come on and talk to us about what we can expect to see with climate change in rivers, as well as, you know, what solutions exist to, to deal with those impacts. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Timmy, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. You know, admittedly, I know a couple things about rivers and climate change, but I'm excited for our discussion because there are a lot of questions remaining that, that I'm hoping we can answer. So, uh, well, let's start out with what makes you hopeful when you, you know, think about efforts that are underway to address climate change. Well, I guess as a biologist and one that's been focusing my career on the fish and the aquatic side, when I think about climate change, I automatically think about water and the changes we are seeing to that resource, like be it lack of water or how that impacts agriculture or influence of fires in the West or the more extreme storm events and how that impacts flooding or erosion in and around our water bodies. All of which I recognize doesn't sound very optimistic, right? But what gives me optimism, I guess, in the face of all that is there is a change in the way we hear people describe rivers. It's no longer the river channel. We're recognizing that rivers aren't just that space that the water flows through. It's the adjoining dry areas, the riparian, the floodplain. And when they are connected, our streams and water become much more resilient in the face of climate change. <laughs> and I can hear you right now, Jason. You're not saying it out loud yet, but in your head, you're saying, okay, now, so we include the adjoining drier land as part of the river. Really? That's the basis for your optimism? I, <laughs> I, I know it sounds crazy. I certainly have seen rivers in spring flows and, you know, areas where the water, you know, spreads out into the floodplain. So I Definitely hear that. And, and I, you know, I've also heard about, you know, some of the work that's been done in places where there's a recognition that kind of the urban landscape has prevented those, you know, wetlands and floodplains from being able to absorb some of the impacts of a flood. So, you know, no enough to be dangerous there, but. Um, <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure why you have me here. This, you, you've got it. Take home <laughs> message right there. But actually, let me give you an example. So just to kind of hit that home. Early in my career, when we were restoring rivers, it was all about building this natural looking river channel. And for the most part, it was an improvement on the status quo, right? But what it really did was keep erosion and flooding in check, but often we were missing some of the key habitat components for aquatic species. 
But on an even bigger miss, in my opinion, was what happens when that flow or sediment regime changes, right? It either erodes because we have more water moving faster, or it goes dry because we have less water than we than what we built it for. But if we think about that adjacent land as part of the river, it gives the river a little more space than just the channel. It has room to kind of react and absorb those changing conditions. You know, this idea of floodplains, there's lots of different ways to reconnect those river channels and those riparian areas. But one of the things that's super exciting to me is that there are some really cost-effective, high-impact solutions out there that I think can make a difference at watershed scales rather than the feet of fixed stream scale. But um, we can go into the details of that a little bit um, later on. And then one other thing I just want to hit on as I'm talking optimism in the face of climate change is I can't skip over the fact that data is so much more readily available now than it ever was before. If we took temperature data as an example, we have models now that look at where species are located, their temperature parameters, what the current water temperature is in that basin or that area. And we can predict the water temperature would be with say a two degree raise in air temperature. So that kind of data is huge in helping us prioritize where to work and what kind of techniques would be best suited to address things like rising water temperature. Well, as an engineer, you don't have to convince me that data is, is important. It definitely helps make better decisions. So that's, that's exciting to hear. Well, I guess maybe we'll start with the obvious question of generally, you know, how are rivers and streams being impacted by climate change or set to be impacted by climate change? Well, we, we kind of touched on it already. Temperatures, for sure, the averages are going up over time. And the other big piece is, you know, changing flow patterns. Our peak highs and peak lows are much higher and much lower than they used to be because of some of these extreme storm events and drought events that we're seeing. And the timing, the timing when that water comes off is completely changing. So, you know, if your snowpack is less, it's melting sooner and the resulting flow in the river doesn't last as long. You know, and that ties right into, say, your water availability. If your water is coming off in one really big extreme storm event, it's blasting right through. So you just don't have that water available like you used to, which also impacts your groundwater. So it's like, it's this whole big cycle. They're all interconnected. And I can walk through like just an example. So in a healthy stream system, we see seasonal variations in flow, right? In the summer months or the drier season, water retreats into the channel. And then when a rainstorm comes through or in the Northwest, snowmelt occurs in the spring, that excess water comes out of the channel and it moves onto the floodplain. I want you to think of the floodplain as that adjacent area to a stream. The flows come up, they spill out onto the floodplain, and this serves a few purposes. That roughness from the grass and the trees and the roots, etc., they slow that velocity of the water down, which reduces the erosion, and it provides aquatic species an area of refuge during those high flows, but it also soaks into the ground. Think of the floodplain as being equivalent to a sponge. Water comes out onto it, it soaks into it, into that ground, and then the water gets released as cool water months later during the dry season. So in the case of increasing highs and lows in flow, it becomes even more important to think of our rivers as 
not just that channel, but that channel and the adjoining floodplains and, and giving rivers space and basically resiliency through changing conditions. But I want to caveat that example with that not every river has this adjacent area that is supposed to absorb water. Given that what you're talking about is sort of the ideal behavior for a river, looking at sort of where we are now and what's coming with climate change, what are, you know, aquatic life set to see in terms of kind of general impacts? Yeah. So if you think about the aquatic species, just the idea that diversity of habitat characteristics is the key to long-term health of any species, right? So we want to see multiple habitat types in, in that stream. So I want to see some deep pools and I want to see some riffles or think rapids when you, when you hear riffles. We need some overhanging vegetation, large boulders or some small boulder clusters, some off-channel areas, just a variety of different pieces throughout that whole stream. For a stream to be able to support healthy populations of aquatic species, it has to be able to maintain conditions for those species through seasonal variations and different life stages, juvenile through adult. So for example, during a storm, when flows are high and the velocity of the water in the channel is so high that it's going to wash out most species, they'll just be pushed downstream. So you need off-channel areas and depressions in that off-channel area where the water is quieter for those species to be able to hold. But in the summer, those off-channel habitats or boulders might not be so important. The deep pools become more critical because they provide cool water and they're deep enough that they have the ability to kind of act as cover from predators. Not every section of stream will, will or should have every possible habitat type, but the more of them that are available, the more species it can sustain. We need to have enough water and at the right temperature to be able to provide a diversity within that stream system. And we're losing that. So it sounds like, you know, even if climate change weren't an issue, having, you really need to have that diversity of habitat for these populations to flourish. So I'm thinking like sort of the messy stream out in the country where you've got trees and, you know, marsh, et cetera, versus where I live in the city where you've got a stream that's just, you know, got concrete on either side where things are, are running through. Exactly. And, and, you know, we live on this planet too, right? So that there's the kind of that block between not every place is going to be pristine. Not every place in the system is going to be able to actually have a wide variety, but just knowing that the more of them that are available, the better it is for a wider variety of species. And, you know, as more folks and more uses are out there for that water, it becomes harder and harder to maintain that diversity. You sort of touched on this a little bit, but we're thinking about, you know, changes to aquatic life because of climate impacts. What in terms of rivers can we expect to see in terms of impact on humans? And I'm sure some people can sort of visualize or maybe experience, you know, things like flooding or rivers going dry, but just wanted to get your perspective it kind of impacts us across the board. It impacts where we're going to build, where we're going to put our infrastructure. It's going to impact our availability of household water. Let's think about that. When we're used to being able to take long, hot showers and turn on the water and, and get cool, clean drinking water anytime we want it. It's going to impact 
just how we live on this world. There's going to be agricultural land loss from these large scale storms and erosion. There's maybe the inability to irrigate because we have huge droughts that we're not used to, the types of crops that can be grown. And I think that all brings us kind of to the social aspect of over allocation of water given our current availability and use. It used to be that different users could negotiate. Everyone would tighten their belt during a drought year and you'd be able to make it work, but not if every year is a drought year, you know? Right. So we're just going to have to change how we think about and use our water. And, you know, this idea of conservation becomes a must and not just a nice thing to do when it's not too inconvenient. Well, we talked about, Todd and I, in our last episode about agriculture and the importance of snowpack. So I can definitely see how across the board, you know, rivers and these these changes that we're going to face with climate are going to be massive, whether we're talking the aquatic life, we're talking about access of water in urban areas, you know, cities and towns, or, you know, for the agricultural side. So, so yeah, so it seems like taking care of our rivers is, is pretty essential. Well, you, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about kind of floodplain. I guess we're always interested on in climate optimists and sort of like, okay, given given the problem, because we want to, people to understand the reality of the problem, we also want to be able to talk about, you know, what solutions exist. So I want to see if you might be able to elaborate a little more on, you know, what can be done to mitigate, you know, climate impacts in rivers. Fantastic segue. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Let's circle back to my early earlier teaser about low cost or cost effective, high impact ways to reconnect our water bodies to their floodplains in the location where that's feasible and where that's a feasible solution, right? So how do you do that? Um, We can use heavy equipment and build floodplains. There's lots of ways to do this. I mean, humans are pretty amazing at designing and engineering solutions. But I also think we have kind of this huge opportunity to invest in some low-tech techniques in our small stream systems. There's a group of researchers out of Utah State University. It's Joe Wheaton and his his group of really smart people. And they've put together a guidebook called the Low-Tech Process-Based Restoration Guide. And let me caveat. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's kind of, it's actually a really useful tool And then, you know, let me caveat this. Joe would be the first one to say that he didn't come up with this brilliant idea. You can find publications back to the 1920s promoting this kind of work. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it's it's not anything new. But what is, I think, a little bit new is that Joe and his group have put it into the context of natural stream process and and what streams would do naturally and trying to mimic that. There's these low-tech, inexpensive ways to where restoration practitioners of late are using natural materials and mimicking things like, say, beaver dams. All of it's done with like, you know, wood posts, willow clippings, and done by hand rather than with an excavator. And for the same cost, miles of stream can be treated as opposed to just a few hundred feet. There's also this great book by Bill Zedike called Let the Water Do the Work. And um, you see techniques in his book where there may not be, um, trees might not be part of the natural environment there, but rock is. So he kind of gives an alternative for using, you know, rock as opposed to wood. And again, it's it's this inexpensive kind of low tech hand built. So 
not only can you treat miles and miles of habitat for low cost, but, you know, somebody that's, you know, it's my land. I don't have a degree in, you know, restoration science and river science, but you can make a difference on your own land that way. So I, I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. I guess to clarify for folks, so they um, have a sense of it, you're talking about smaller streams. Are these are these little creeks? Are we, you know, talking things that you can easily walk across? It's, it's those streams that you can walk across. Okay. Certainly, you can do them in larger systems and people have, but there's not certainty. You know, when, when you ask an engineer to design a stream solution, they run it through a, a, a model and they make sure exactly at different flows where the water goes and, and where's this, you know, things are going to move around a little bit and, and the water's going to do the work and, you know, it, it's not as predictable. But in these smaller streams, when you don't have infrastructure around them, that becomes viable. And then, you know, even if you're not irrigating or maybe you don't even have, you know, trout and salmon up there, maybe you just have some frogs and some other amphibians, or maybe it's a sponge and it's soaking up and keeping that adjacent area green for longer than it used to. And when the fire comes through, lo and behold, it's protected. So it's, it's just this idea that you're holding that water deeper and then it migrates its way downstream later in the season. So it's not just fixing that part of the stream where you physically put a stone and a willow in, it's actually transferring it downstream as well. You know, on Climate Optimist, we, you know, try to always ask when we're talking about these different facets of climate change, you know, what what can we as a community of folks do? And so I wanted to kind of pose that question to you to see, you know, kind of at a high level, if you had recommendations for those of us who are interested in, you know, helping our rivers become more resilient uh, in the face of climate change. And this is always a hard one to answer for me, but, you know, the obvious answer is just be aware, like, you know, understanding and, you know, what rivers do, what they do naturally and, and the fact that they need space. So, you know, I think just taking in that information, but there's also opportunities to go get your feet wet and get your hands dirty at your local watershed councils. And there's also um, other organizations that are purchasing water for in-stream use. There's organizations like the Nature Conservancy that purchase property, that they're focused on, you know, wider than just rivers but that property goes into conservation. So again, I think there's there's a wide variety. And so, you know, I didn't give you a, a here's the golden ticket. This is what you do and it'll all be better. So that, <laughs> but I guess there's lots of options, right? <laughs> it sounds like our streams, I know in many cases are already challenged and climate change is going to make that more challenging, that there are actions that we can be taking to help those streams become more resilient and definitely taking away that we want our streams to be more messy, if that's a fair analogy. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's certainly a reason for hope. It sounds like we need to ramp up those efforts so we can, you know, get ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to hear you, you know, talk about what's out there and, and the potential of it. So thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Anytime that I get to talk about rivers and people have to listen to me, um, all the better. <laughs> so Todd, listening to 
Timmy's interview, what were your uh, takeaways? You know, I was really intrigued. I thought there was a lot of information there, but it was it was really interesting to see how it all ties together, and it made sense that you know these are really complex systems that really involve the entire watershed. I was also impressed in ourselves. No, not really. But I did feel like a lot of what she talked about reiterated some of the stuff we spoke about in our last episode about snowpack and temperatures and how it's going to affect these rivers. So I thought that was cool too. Yeah, I think, you know, I was... Made me think back to my childhood when she was talking about, you know, going out and sticking, you know, sticks in the river. I must have been maybe sixth grade. We had this kind of degraded piece of river property below our house and actually went down and all we really did were remove the cattle from the area and mm-hmm. stab a bunch of willow cuttings in. Nice. It's just amazing when you kind of get out of the way. It's funny you mentioned that. I did a very similar activity. My aunt Linda Rowe worked for the Soil and Water Conservation District. Oh, really? I, I don't even know how I got roped into these things. I just, you don't have memory of everything. You just have memory of doing it. Right. And, but I remember going out there with a little bag and there are these little willow willow starts and they kind of show you how to you know, stick them into the mud or whatever you do. And I, I think it's crazy, but I was worried about it. And I always thought like years later, they'd be driving up through the canyon and they'd be like, well, these bare spots, that's where Tashida put his willow sticks. <laughs> that was always my fear that like 20, 30 years later, I would have just screwed this whole river system up or something by not doing it right. I feel like there might be some demons in there we need to explore further. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's like an Eastern Oregon rite of passage going out. And I, I guess stick, stick a willow stick a willow into the, the ground. Yeah, I I really was excited to hear her talk about the fact that there are these you know low cost restoration options. Not because we don't and shouldn't spend the money on bigger projects, but because the reality is we need to be doing all this stuff at scale. Yeah, you know, like we can't afford to have it be here and there, and so. Mm-hmm when you're talking about where to spend dollars, this idea that you can make these incremental changes and it can have big follow-on impacts for the watershed. Like that's exciting. It is. I I was, I I was, I was happy to hear that the data was good enough to sort of analyze what needs to be done. And I thought that was huge. Even, even the high cost stuff you can, it sounds like you can kind of manufacture solutions to problems with heavy equipment and things like that. And I would have thought that would have been kind of counterintuitive, right? But it seems like it can be done. I was kind of thinking in my head, it kind of sounds like we screwed it up by accident, but we can fix it on purpose, kind of. That's fair. No, I, I was I was happy to hear that there seems like they're both low-cost and high-cost solutions. Uh, some of the low-cost solutions, obviously, you can kind of make some small changes now that over time to, to kind of kickstart the river to, to do its thing, right? And 30 years later, you could have a much better situation than we have now. So that, that was exciting. It seems like there's a lot of opportunity to do, to do those kind of things. It was exciting to me too, because in, in addition to sort of the benefits that these kind of projects can supply to, you know, aquatic species, this real benefit for, you know, the human side of things. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, seem like it's often when you sort of get that win-win kind of situation. Right. And so I thought that was, that was exciting. And, you know, it, 
it really kind of in line with our conversation last week makes me think like you need to be ramping up these things to sort of focus on preserving the supply side of water, mm-hmm. you know, floodplain work to, you know, capture water, more vegetation to reduce evaporation, et cetera. And then it really illustrates too, that we really got to work on the demand side too, right? You know, we talked about reducing water use and more efficient irrigation. It seems like that's going to have to be done across the board, you know, rethinking where you grow certain crops that are maybe more water intensive, certainly doing more robust conservation in urban areas. It seems like it's going to have to be an all of the above yeah. kind of solution. Yeah. I also like how she did mention that, you know, we're here too and things have changed and it's, it's obviously you're not going to be able to return everything to, to like it once was, you know, 10,000 years ago. I mean, and it makes sense too, especially I was thinking about floodplains, which when I think of floodplains, I usually think of, you know, kind of the valley floor right. of river systems, right? Which is also, you know, maybe unfortunately kind of where people want to live. Like that's where all people are at are doing things. Agriculture, cities are generally by big rivers. So, you know, there's there's a lot of impact, but it sounds like there's a lot of solution we can provide too to make it to make it all work better. So the next question, as always, is is what can we do? As Timmy pointed out, there's a lot of great ways to get involved to help our rivers. To make things simple, we're recommending folks consider a donation to the Nature Conservancy. They do a lot of great work restoring and protecting river habitat. They're also working to tackle the water shortage on the Colorado River. If you want to get down to it, the biggest way we can support our rivers is by reducing our emissions. And as we mentioned last week, Congress is considering a price on carbon as part of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. The Biden administration needs to know we're supportive of a price on carbon. So take a moment to send him a quick note or message him on Facebook. We'll have talking points on our website to help you out. It's seriously no more than a two-minute exercise. So, as always, thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy the podcast, please help us spread the word by telling your friends and family about it. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. Follow us on social at Climate Stewards Collective. Oh,